Over the past few weeks, we've been talking about what it takes to live a victorious Christian life. The Apostle Paul is revealing that to us in these first three chapters of Ephesians, so that when we get to chapters 4 through 6, where he tells us what to do, where he kind of sets the bar for Christian living and raises it for us, and we will be equipped to handle it. He makes that objective fairly explicit when in chapter 1, verse 18, which I just prayed, he reveals how he is praying for us. He says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the, in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe. This power is exactly what we need to harness, as it were, if we are going to be able to live the kind of life characterized by chapters 4 through 6. Without that power, there's no hope. Our Christian experience will just be one disappointing defeat after another, and I'm afraid there are many who live that way. There are many who come to church week after week, and during the week, no one knows that they're living by defeat after defeat after defeat. And it shouldn't be that way. Paul wants us to access the power of God for Christian living. It's a significant theme throughout these first three chapters. Now, obviously, as you're reading these chapters, another major theme, perhaps even more major than this, is salvation. The grace that saves, and we cover that along the way. But there's not only a saving message here, but there is also an empowering message. And the two go together. The two always go together. Too often we think of the gospel as something that we hear on one particular occasion, and we respond to it, and we are saved, and then we're kind of left for the rest of our life to figure out what to do from there. And that's not the case. The gospel, the saving grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, given to us on the day that we believe, is then the beginning of the outpouring of God's grace. And Paul has been revealing to us what all of those graces look like and exhorting us to live by their power. For example, in 118, as, as we just saw, he prays that we would know the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe. And look at chapter 3, verse 7. He says that God made Paul a minister of the gospel according to the working of his power. So it was God's power that made Paul a minister and empowered him to minister. And he needed a lot of it. If you know anything about the life of the Apostle Paul, he was under constant persecution, constant criticism. In chapter 3, verse 14, he prays that God would strengthen us with power through his spirit in the inner man. He doesn't want us to be weak. He understands that what he's calling us to do, what he's about to call us to do, starting with chapter 4, is something that's impossible for us unless we are empowered by the spirit of God. In chapter 3, verse 20, he says he praises God who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that works within us. And even in Colossians that we read for our time this morning, at the end of chapter 1, Paul says uh, that he ministers, he labors according to Christ's 
power. I labor according to his power, which mightily works within me. Paul wants us to know that power. And so the point is, if you are a true true child of God, you have all the power you need to live the kind of life God wants you to live. There are no exceptions. There are no second-class saints. The grace that empowers us is part and parcel with the grace that saved us. You cannot separate the two. God, in his grace, by his glorious power, saves us. And then, by his grace and glorious power, he sanctifies us. It's all the same thing. It's all one big package. If you have one, then by definition, you, of necessity, have the other. It is not necessary to wait until you've achieved some mystical level of spiritual maturity. It's not something reserved for the spiritual superheroes of our time. This is something that all who believe have at their disposal. If you have Christ, you have it all. You have it all. You are complete. There is nothing else that you need. In fact, to add something to Christ is to dilute and to poison what God has given. He alone is sufficient to meet your every need. And since God has permanently united you with Christ, both legally and organically, as we saw last week, there is nowhere that you can go to get away from him. There's nowhere that you can go that the Lord Jesus Christ and all of his resources and all of his privileges and all of his status, there's no place you can go where he isn't there. It's like David in Psalm 139 who said, Where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, you're there. If I take the wings of the dawn, if I dwell in the remotest part of the sea, even there... Your right hand will lead me and your hand will lay hold of me. If I say, surely the darkness will overwhelm me and the light around me will be night. Well, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is as bright as the day. Darkness and light are alike to you. In other words, you couldn't get away from the Spirit of God even if you tried. You are so united, inextricably united to the person of Jesus Christ that you couldn't get away from your resources in Christ, even if you tried. The question is not, do you have what you need? The question is, are you taking advantage of what you have? Before he ascended back into heaven, Jesus said these words, Behold, I am with you wherever you go, even to the end of the age. I'm with you wherever you go, even until the end of the age. He's always with us. He's always there to empower us. We need but to ask. And by the way, James tells us in James chapter, uh, uh, chapter 5, uh, excuse me, 1 John chapter 5, John writes, This is the confidence which we have before him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us and whatever we ask, we know that we have the request which we have asked for in him. What do you need? He's there. He's ready to be asked. He's ready to provide. And we know that whatever we ask according to his will, he is ready to give. All of this simply means 
God has made more than adequate provision for us so that we can live in a way that pleases the Lord no matter how big the challenge. No matter how big the challenge. The only question is, do we believe it? And are we willing to live in the good of it? That's the only difference between those who live victoriously and those who flounder in their Christian life. One is taking advantage of the glorious provision that he has in Christ, and the other one is not. Paul desperately wants us to know that we have this all-surpassing power at our disposal, and he wants us to know how powerful it really is. And so, in chapter 2, verse 1, he reminds us of our first experience of God's power in real time. He says, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins. You were dead. And what does that mean exactly? Well, according to verses 1 through 3, it means that before he redeemed us, we used to walk according to the course of this world. We used to follow the ways of the devil. We used to live as the offspring of disobedience. We used to delight in the lust of the flesh indulging the desires of the flesh, gratifying the desires of the mind. And because of all of that, we were targets of God's wrath, even as the rest. And what's worse, like all dead things, we, there, there was absolutely nothing we could do to help ourselves. Nothing we could do to get, us, get ourselves out of that condition. Our condition was utterly hopeless. We were doomed. And yet, the story doesn't end there. In verse 4, we read, but God, but God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. That's what happened to you. In real time, that was the first expression of the power of God mightily working in your life. He made you alive. He made you alive. You and I were spiritually dead. We were unable, and by the way, unwilling to live a life that pleases the Lord. In God's estimation, the only thing we had the power to do was sin. But God. When he exercised his awesome power the power that it took to raise Jesus from the dead, it swooped us up right off of our deathbed with him and gave us life in him. And now in Christ we are alive. Now in Christ we are alive. Now we not only have the capacity to choose what is right and good and pleasing to the Lord, we also have the power to do what is right and good and pleasing to the Lord. What a blessed gift that is. What a blessed privilege. No wonder we worship him. No wonder we worship him. God made us alive. He made us alive together with Christ. And that was the first thing he did for us, as we discussed last week. But he reveals two more things he did for us as well. First, he made us alive. And then... He raised us up. Look at the next verse, verses 5 and 6. He says, Even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him. Notice what Paul is doing here. 
He's using what happened physically to the Lord Jesus Christ to explain what happened to us spiritually. What happened to us spiritually is the same thing that happened to Jesus physically. And that's appropriate because our union with Christ simply means that God has so joined us together that everything that happened to him also happened to us in the eyes of God. We were dead. And so the only way Jesus could save us is to come to the grave after us. And this he did. But he didn't stay dead. When he burst forth to life again that glorious Easter morning, all who are in Christ came forth with him. No exceptions. All who are in Christ came forth with him. And so we read in chapter 4, verse 8 of this same epistle, Ephesians, Paul speaks of that same event. He says, when he, that is Christ, ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives. That would be us. He led captive a host of captives. In other words, Jesus broke into the chamber of death where you and I were held prisoners to sin. He smashed the chains that bound us. He claimed us for himself. And so when God raised him up, he raised us up with him. We are no longer captives or slaves to sin. Now we are captives or slaves to Christ. We are not our own. We have been bought with a price. That's what our salvation is like. That's what our salvation is like. God didn't just give us life and then leave us in the grave to do the best we can. He raised us up out of the realm of sin, out of the dominion of the devil. As Paul says in Colossians 1, God has rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. We've not only been made alive, we've also been raised up from the realm of the grave and placed in the realm of God. And that's where true believers live, right? That's where you and I live. We live in the realm of God. We live in the kingdom of God. When we were spiritually dead in the grave, we had no desire whatsoever to please Him. We had no desire whatsoever to fellowship with Him or His people. We had no desire to delight in Him or find anything in Him that was pleasing to us. Now He's everything to us. Right? Now He's everything to us. There have been a number of occasions that the Lord has allowed me to see this glorious transformation in people's lives firsthand. It happened to me when I was in my late teens coming out of a godless high school experience. I went off to Word of Life Bible Institute up in upstate New York. And God got a hold of my life in a transforming way. So much so that many of the most significant things in my life Things that used to be significant lost their significance to me entirely. Old friends, old relationships, old habits, old desires transformed. I found a love for God's people that wasn't there before. I found a love for God's word that wasn't there before. I found a love for God's person, the Lord Jesus Christ, that wasn't there before. I found a love for God's music. All of the things of God suddenly became precious to me when before they were worthless. 
And I could tell you several stories. I could tell you several stories from people in this congregation. And when a moment of crisis came, asking questions, looking for help, and now we look back one year, seven, eight years, and see radical, radical transformation in their lives. Is that true of you? Is that true of you? Can you see that kind of power at work in your life? What is that? You know what it is? But God, even when you were dead, made you alive in Christ and raised you up. That's what it is. You've been raised up. You've been made alive and you've been raised up with Christ. And that's the way it always is when God steps into the world of some dead sinner and gives him life and raises him to the realm of God. And so Paul says in Romans 6, verse 4, Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in, listen, newness of life. He doesn't just say, so that you will believe or so that you will think differently. You will think in a new way. No, 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 no. That's not what he says. He says, so that you might walk, so that you might live, so that you might talk, so that you might make decisions that are consistent with this new life that you've been given. It's a new life because it is lived now in a new realm. Now we are in the kingdom of God's beloved Son. Now we who were once dead in sin are alive to God. Now we have the Holy Spirit with new affections and new desires. And we will never be the same. We'll never be the same. And by the way, there's an opposite side of that coin. Paul puts it like this. It's not only that we are alive to God. That's the glorious transformation. But being alive to God also assumes something else. Being alive to God is the positive side of the coin. The negative side of the coin is this. You are now dead to sin. Alive to God, dead to sin. Turn with me to Romans chapter 6, verses 5 through 11. Romans 6, 5 through 11. Because here the apostle explains what it means to be dead to sin. (coughs) Dead to sin. And raised with Christ. Romans chapter 6, verses 5 through 11. Paul writes, For if we have been united with him, you see the union there, in Christ, if we have been united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him, in order that our body of sin might be done away with, so that we would no longer be what? Slaves to sin. Verse 7. For he who has died is freed from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. Even so... Now, that's, that's Christ. That's what he did. Now, look at the transition. Verse 11. 
Even so, you consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ. Therefore, Paul, tell me practically, what does that look like? Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For, verse 14, sin shall not be master over you. Now, there is no clearer way to communicate this truth than what we have right here in the Apostle Paul. When Jesus died, you died. When Jesus was raised, you were raised. Everything hinges on that truth. Everything. And the practical theology that comes off of that is not something you have to search for. Paul explains it. Since that is true, since you are now no longer dead, you're alive to God. Since you are no longer bound, you're now free. Since you're no longer in the grave, you've now been raised. Now live like that. That's the whole message of Ephesians. It's the central message of the Apostle Paul throughout all of his writings. That's what it means to be raised with Christ. Death and sin are no longer your master. In fact, we are dead to sin, like a freed slave is dead to the old master. You know how a slave could get free from his master before the days of abolition? Before slavery was pronounced illegal, before the slave trade stopped in England and America, you know the only way a slave could get out from under the yoke of his master? It's one way. Death. He could die, and then he'd be free if he knew the Lord. But in their minds, the only way to be free was to die. The only way you're going to get out from under this slave master is to die. Paul is saying, in Christ, you died. You died. And in Christ, you've been raised again so that you will now live. Now, don't live to that old slave master sin anymore. You don't have to. You used to have to. But you don't have to anymore. You're free. You're free. The only question is, are you going to make use of your freedom? Or are you going to live according to the old habits of the slave life? You don't have to live that way anymore. We are dead to sin. Like a freed slave is dead to his old master. We no longer need to obey its impulses and commands. Is sin still going to command you? Yeah. Are you still tempted? Yeah. Do you have to obey? Not anymore. Not anymore. It may be true that we are still captive, excuse me, we are still capable in our foolishness and our sin to listen to the devil and to yield to the impulses of our flesh. We can do that. We're still capable of saying no to God and yes to sin. Yes, we're still capable. But we don't have to. 
we now have the power to say no. In fact, God now commands us to say no. Why? Simply this. Simply because we have been given the power and authority to say no to sin. By the surpassing power of God, we've been made alive and raised, and now we have the freedom to live to God. But there's still something else that the power of God has accomplished on our behalf. We've not only been made alive in Christ and raised together with Christ, we have also been, listen to this, seated with him in the heavenly places. Verse 6. Verse 5 says, even when we were dead in our transgression, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ. Now, what does it mean that we have been raised with Christ and seated in heavenly places? What are the heavenly places? Well, the heavenly places are referred to by Paul in 2 Corinthians 12.2. He's kind of giving his autobiography. He's telling, he's defending his apostleship. And he says this about himself. He writes, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, whether in the body or I do not know, or out of the body I do not know, God knows. Such a man was caught up into the third heaven. And I know how such a man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I don't know, God knows was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words which a man is not permitted to speak. I know somebody who was caught up in the third heaven. He's referring to himself. Clearly Paul was writing about himself. He was the man who was caught up into the third heaven. Now, understand that in the Hebrew way of thinking there were three heavens. There was one heaven... You look up in the sky and you see clouds and birds and airplanes. That's heaven number one. The second heaven is the place where we call the planetary realm or outer space where there's the sun and the planets and all of the galaxies and all of the things that God created with a word. And that's the second heaven. But there's a third heaven. The third heaven is the place where God and his angelic host reside. It is the spiritual realm pictured throughout the Bible as the eternal home of the Lord Jesus and all who belong to him. That's the third heaven. And so when Paul speaks of us being seated in the heavenlies or in heavenly places, some of your translations read, he's speaking of that place where Jesus Christ in his glorified body and all the holy angels of God dwell. Paul says, you have been seated there. He made you alive, he raised you up, and he seated you in heavenly places, in the third heaven. You remember back in the Old Testament, the only person who could approach God and walk into the Holy of Holies, you remember who that was? It's only one man. And he was the high priest. Whoever the high priest was that year, was allowed to enter into the very throne room of God. Nobody else could go. Nobody else could just lollygag into the temple and say, I'd like to speak with God, please. You couldn't do that. If you had a problem, you couldn't go in and talk to God. If you had a need, you couldn't just walk in there and say, Hello, God, are you here today? 
I'd like to speak to you. Couldn't do that. Well, what could you do? You could go to one of the priests to represent you. You could go to a priest and take a lamb as a kafar, a covering for your sin, and kill it and have it sacrificed on your behalf so that your sins would be covered. But you could not go directly into the presence of God. Why? Because you lived in a different realm. You didn't live in the heavenlies. You didn't live in the realm of God. You weren't welcome. And even the high priest, before he entered, one time a year had to make propitiation for his own sins. He had to have a a, a lamb slaughtered on his behalf to cover his sins before he could go into the Holy of Holies. It was not something to be done casually. And if anyone tried, they'd be struck dead. But you know what? That's no longer true. Back in the Old Testament, no one else had access to God. But that's no longer the case. You know what it means to be seated in heavenly places? It means we are seated in the throne room of God. We no longer need an earthly priest to represent us before God. Now that we've been made alive together with Christ and raised with Him and seated with Him in the presence of God, we're no longer on the outside looking in. Now we're on the inside, looking face to face, as it were, into the glory of Christ, the glory of God. We're in His very presence in Christ. And that's why the author of Hebrews can exhort us to, quote, draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find help in time of need. If he had not made you alive and raised you up and seated you in the realm of God, in the very throne room of God, you'd have no access. You'd have no access. You see the significance of this? We used to be dead to God. We used to be on the outside looking in, a target of his just and holy wrath. But now in Christ, we live in his presence like precious children. We have no need to fear him. There's no more need to fear God. As Paul said, there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Notice, those who are in Christ Jesus. Well, where's Christ Jesus? Seated at the right hand of God. Well, where am I? Seated at the right hand of God. Where am I? Wherever Jesus is. Where is Jesus? Always before the Father. He lives to make intercession for us. We stand before the presence of God in Christ, addressing the Father with all of our needs, all of our needs for grace and mercy, if we would but ask. That's why the author of Hebrews addresses us and exhorts us to draw near. We can. So we must. The whole point of this is that God is not far away from us anymore. God is not far away. We don't have to go through some sanctimonious ritual or plead with a priest or the saints or Mary or anyone else to take our needs and our concerns into the presence of the Father. We're already there in Christ. Now we are actually in the throne room of God. Now we are not only welcome into his presence, we are expected 
to actually interact with him personally regarding any of the needs that we have for mercy and grace. We are there and we are welcome. Isn't that amazing? We are there and we are welcome. Notice in verse 6 that we are not kneeling in his presence. We are not prostrate on the floor. Where are we? Seated. We are seated with him. The term seated here is important as it relates to Christ. <coughs> Hebrews 1 3 says, When he was made, when he had made purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, at the right hand of majesty on high, having become a much better, as much better than the angels, as he has inherited a more excellent name than they. But to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Answer? None of them. Jesus is greater than the angels. He sat down at the right hand of God. Hebrews 8.1. Now, the main point, the author says, the main point in what has been said is this. We have such a high priest who has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. Hebrews 10.12, every priest stands, ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sins, but he, having offered one sacrifice for sin for all times, sat down at the right hand of God. Hebrews 12.2, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. You get the picture? The idea here is that the work of Jesus on our behalf is finished. The work of the Lord Jesus is done. He did the job when he came and sat down. He did the job when he was on earth. He did the job by coming, being born as a baby and living a life for some 33 years, having never sinned but being tempted in every way such as we are, so that he could be a faithful high priest, and that he was. And not only high priest, but the offering as well. And when he completed the job, he went home and he sat down. It is finished. There is nothing left to do. It is done. And the thing that we need to understand is this, that because his work is finished, so is ours. In fact, he did all the work, and he did it in our place. So he gets all the glory for what is accomplished in us. No, he doesn't want us working to achieve our own salvation. He's already done it. It is finished. So with respect to the work of salvation, we have nothing to do but sit down. Sit down. Why are you still working to earn what has already been earned? Would you please sit down? Would you please honor Christ by recognizing the work that he did and just Sit down. I love that. If you're already a child of God, do you realize the power for living that is at your disposal? 
your responsibility is simply to receive like a beggar who is being offered incalculable wealth at the hand of another. And the power that accomplished that for you is the power by which you now uh, employ to make your life all that God wants it to be. You are to strive according to His power which mightily works within you. This is the power of God that raised Jesus from the dead and swept you up in its wake, making you alive and raising you up and seating you with Christ in the heavenlies. And the difference between a victorious Christian life and a defeated Christian life is simply whether or not you're making use of the power for life that is yours in Christ. You know, you can think of a thousand illustrations for this. It's like God is giving you a load to move that you could never move. But you know what else he's given? He's giving you a truck that can haul it. And he's put you in the truck, and he's given you the key, and he's saying, do it. Do this impossible thing. I've equipped you to do it. You need but to turn on the key and step on the gas, and you will do Superhuman feats. You'll do the impossible. I'm not asking you to do what's natural. I'm asking you to do what is supernatural, and I've equipped you to do it. John Owen, in his theological mind, came up with a little poem. He said, Run, John, run, the law demands, but gives you neither feet nor hands. A better call the gospel brings. It bids you fly and gives you wings. Everything that God has required, he has also provided in Christ. You have everything you need. You already have it. The question is, are you using it? Are you using it? The second time that Paul wrote to his protege, Timothy, he said, Timothy, realize this, that in the last days, difficult times will come. Let me tell you what men will be like. Men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revelers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. You know what? It's not only going to be in the world, it'll be in the church too. People who are in the church who are this way, they're lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. They're quick to take offense. They're quick to, uh, to take on a bitter root and not do anything to reconcile. They're quick to hate their parents. They're quick to be disobedient to them. They love money. They love it so much they're willing to sell their soul to get it. And they're in the church. But that's not the end of this text. He says, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Holding, listen, holding to a form of godliness, although they have what? Denied its what? Power. They hold to a form of godliness, but they deny its power. 
And I tell you, the church is full. The church in America is full of people who hold to a form of godliness but deny its power. Do you have a hollow form of godliness? Or do you have the real thing? The difference is in whether or not you deny its power or whether you employ its power. You say, well, how do I, how do I tap into this awesome power that is mine in Christ? Well, I'm glad you asked. Let me give you several ways. Romans 1, 16. First, trust the gospel, the message of the gospel, because it is, what? The power of God unto salvation. If you don't know him, your first experience of the power of God will be this power that we have described, the power that makes you alive and raises you up and seats you in heavenly places. Obey the gospel, Peter would say. Believe the gospel, John would say. Trust the message of the gospel. It is the power of God unto salvation. Secondly, immerse yourself in the word of God, 1 Corinthians 1.18. Because to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. Paul is saying, the word of the cross is foolishness to the unbeliever. But to those of us who believe, it is the power of God. Immerse yourself in the Word of God. Third, give up your own self-sufficiency. Give up your own self-sufficiency. Because you know what Paul discovered? 2 Corinthians 12.9 Because the power of Christ is perfected in our weakness. You remember Paul? Talks about how he was beaten, stoned, left for dead, outcast, abused by false brothers, abused by the religious authorities, shipwrecked, all the things that he faced. Not only that, but there was the constant burden of all the churches upon his mind, his heart, and the risks that they were taking and the division that sometimes infiltrated. Not only that, but he had a a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan, which theologians will go to glory arguing about what that was. We don't know what it was in particular. A messenger of Satan. Some believe it was, uh, uh, I think probably the best understanding of this is that it was a man in the church who was bent on taking Paul out. Paul said, when I first, my first arrival... I was accused and none stood with me. I wonder who that accuser was. I wonder how much damage he did that Paul had to write a letter to defend his apostleship and, and claimed himself foolish for doing what he would in no other circumstances want to do, and that is make of himself something when he knew he was nothing apart from Christ. And three times he prayed, God, Please remove this, remove this, remove this. And three times the Lord responded by what? By saying, my grace is sufficient for you. For power is made perfect in weakness. You got a weakness? You got a problem? You got a chronic issue 
that just will not seem to go away, God's ordained that for you. God has ordained that for you. And there's power there. Power beyond anything you think. You think this is bringing you down. No. God said, my power is made perfect in weakness. Number three, take risks for the glory of God. For his, his power is most clearly experienced when faced with the impossible. I wasn't sure what scripture to, to go to on this. There are so many. You have Peter standing up before the Sanhedrin proclaiming the gospel. You've got Peter in jail. You've got Paul and all of his hardships continuing on, going by himself to Athens to face whatever might be there, telling the Corinthians, I'm coming, and you're going to see the power of God in me if you don't repent. Take risks. I mean, talk about a guy who lived his life while he lived. Most of us don't know what life is because we don't take any risks. I was thinking about this and thinking this week about Ramona Cosgrove joining a team and going to Africa, using her skills, her talents, taking the risk. Who knows what's down there? What is it that God's calling you to do? Share the gospel with a neighbor, a co-worker, a family member? Take the risk. Take the risk. And you'll know the power of God. People say, how do I experience God? If, if you know, some of these other options that are in the Christian bookstore are not something that's consistent with sound doctrine, then how do I experience God? You want to know how you experience God? Share your faith. Stand for righteousness. Go find a brother or a sister who doesn't know the Lord and share the gospel with them. That's hard. You want to see the power of God in your life? Put yourself in a position where you may have to suffer and watch God come through. Find yourself in an in a insurmountable place where you, you don't have enough month at the end of your money. And instead of whining and complaining about it, pray and say, God, I know that you have promised that you would give me all sufficiency to meet every need and to, be, and to do it in abundance so that I would be able to meet the needs of others also. Pray, thank Him, praise Him for His provision, and watch Him work. You want to see the power of God in your life? Trust Him. In tangible ways, trust Him. And lastly, be devoted to prayer. Be devoted to prayer. For it is the key that unlocks all the treasures and resources God holds in store for all who ask. There is no way to access them without prayer. You can't be a a man who doesn't pray or a woman who doesn't pray and know the joy of seeing the power of God working in your life. Oh, you'll see God sovereignly move. You'll see things that, that you can praise Him for. But you know what? They won't be in answer to what you requested. You won't see him responding to you personally. That's why we develop these prayer journals for our people. So that you could have a place in the back where you would write down everything that God is doing for you. So in years to come, you can look back and see God's promises of grace fulfilled in the past so that you will trust him for the future. Are you trusting the power of God? Are you throwing your life 
into his hands? Are you taking risks? Are you a, a man or woman of prayer? I pray that you are. I pray that you are. Because by those means and others, God unlocks all of his treasure that he has bound up for you in Christ. The first step to living a victorious Christian life is to believe that you are dead no more. You are risen. He has made you alive. So live. Live. Father, we pray that you would help us to do just that. Because apart from your spirit and apart from the power of your grace, we will flounder all of our days. We'll never get control of the sinful habits that are ours. We'll never get control of the thoughts of our hearts and the intentions of our mind that don't honor you. Oh, Father, I pray that you would give us spiritual mindedness, true spiritual mindedness as we immerse ourselves in your word, as we trust you for your grace. And, Father, may we see the glorious power of God in Christ exercised on our behalf for your glory and for our incalculable joy. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.